Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullick. So Rachel, want to tell people why we haven't recorded in a little bit? <laughs> so here's the thing. The last time we recorded, the Raptors were going into game six. I don't know if anyone's been paying attention to what's been going on, but the Raptors won. And so Ian may or may not have been crying on Twitter. Uh, Ian, would you like to fill everyone in on perhaps how your voice is doing? Yeah, no, it's funny because before the series started, my girlfriend and I decided that we really wanted to go to a game in that Milwaukee series. We were thinking about game three or four, but I I convinced her. I'm like, no, 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 trust me. If game six happens, you're going to want to be there. So we dropped, I think, four hundred dollars, four fifty on on tickets for for Game Six. I'm, it's bread and water for me for the next month or two, but yeah, the Raptors won, went to the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history, and I was ready to jump up and scream and celebrate. But you know how what sometimes when you go through extreme emotion, like when a traumatic event happens, sometimes your body responds by laughing. It just your body doesn't know how to respond sometimes. Yeah, in the happiest moment of my sports life. Uh, I, I burst out crying, apparently. Apparently, that's what my body decided I needed to do. And uh, yeah, my girlfriend gave me the video and I put it out on Twitter. And uh, apparently, some people had a similar reaction. And then deep into the night until like 4 a.m., everybody was just screaming on the streets, high-fiving, hugging each other. So yeah, I didn't have a voice for the next couple days. <laughs> yeah, that was the greatest street party ever. Like, it was... I don't even know how to describe it. People were lighting off fireworks. There were people on streetcars. And the funniest thing was I was at a streetlight and there was a cop kind of standing, I would say like 10 feet from me, looking up at a guy who was climbing the streetlight. And the cop literally just says to him, be careful, sir, and enjoy your evening. Like, (laughs) what are you going to do at that point? It's super Canadian. It's just like, "Eh, if you're being safe, like if you just like, you know, there's not much I can really do at this point. (laughs) But nothing was stolen. Nothing was broken. It was just like people doing celebratory things right and I think it's so good for the city and you see Jurassic Park so that's sort of why the podcast is being recorded on a Friday because there was some combine stuff going on this week and then the Raptors were doing their thing and it was a pretty big thing so Raptors are up 1-0 in the NBA Finals with home court advantage, and Kevin Durant may or may not be dead. So I'm just letting you know that this is uh, it's a good opportunity here. It's kind of crazy. That's the T. That is the T. But this isn't a basketball podcast. We should probably transition here. <laughs> yeah, this is not a basketball podcast. We just had to get that in. But what are we talking about there, Mr. Voice Guy? So it's funny, we're going to be talking about the NHL Combine today, and I think I'm going to take an extremely pessimistic view towards it because I'm a huge uh, sports fan in general. I watch NFL Combine. Back in the day, I literally used to watch the NFL Combine, like beginning to end. I'd watch all the receivers doing their drills. I'd watch all the running backs, the O-linemen. I was huge into the NFL Combine. I, I, I really liked it in terms of me getting a chance to see all the different athletes do what they do. The NBA Combine can be kind of interesting, especially when it comes to like vertical jump or how fast players can run from, from one side of the court to the other. The NHL Combine, we're going to talk about it today. I'm extremely skeptical of how useful any of the information is and how much it relates to actual on-ice performance. So I think we're just going to dive into it today. What happens at the NHL Combine and... I'm going to be uh, a little bit critical of uh, of it, I think. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like it's important to talk about what actually goes 
on at the combine because we just see a bunch of people and then Kyle Dubas comes out and says, oh, we're going to try and trade Nikita Zaitsev. And then there's a bunch of trade rumors that go along with that. But And then there's the guy on the bike and then somebody's just th- that guy who screams at everybody on the bike and then they the go braid. and throw up afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the combine. There's essentially, there's two parts of the combine. There's the physical testing, which is what we all see. And then there are the interviews. Um, the interviews are definitely the most important part. So we'll just give you the rundown of the physical testing before we kind of get into the nitty gritty. So quick, uh, quick heads up. Hockey is a sport that's played on ice. Um, all of the combine testing happens off the ice and I don't get it whatsoever, but ugh, that's the biggest thing for me. Oh, and we'll get there because I'm a hundred percent going to put a quarter in you and fire you up about this. So it's, it essentially starts with body measurements. So the prospect's height, weight, fat percentage, wingspan, like just your regular stuff. And that's at every combine because they need to know your body's dimensions. Um, There's a bench press. So it's how many times a prospect can bench press 50% of their body weight. Interesting. I know in the NFL, they pick a a number. I think it's 225 pounds and that's for every player. So it's interesting that in hockey, they try to make it relative to your weight. I like that. Yeah, it's like a muscular endurance, I guess. Then there's the jump station um, on a force plate. And I actually, I don't mind this one because it can tell you a lot. So it's basically test your vertical jump, um, how much power you gain, and you have to do three types of jumps. So um, there's one you can't use your arms to generate power, one that you can, and then I'm forgetting the other one. But essentially, it's your fast twitch muscle, and it's an indication of just like how powerful um, and how forceful you are with um, your legs. And so that could be an indication of ability to accelerate kind of thing. Um, Here's one that I know you definitely won't like, the grip strength test. There's, there are a lot of jokes that are coming to my, my mind right now that I'm going to have to not say because this is a PG podcast. But yeah, what's up with the grip strength? Tell me about the grip strength. I honestly, you're essentially grabbing something and it tests how strong your grip is. Can that tell you how hard you can fire a wrist shot or like, I, I what does that tell you? No, because I, I don't know what it tells you other than how hard you can grip your stick, which I mean... Players drop their sticks anyway, so, like, what does it matter? I don't know. Holding the stick too tight. <laughs> He's gripping the stick too tight. You know if someone's too good at the grip strength that, you, you know, do not draft. That's <laughs> um, then there's pull-ups, and infamously, Sam Bennett could not do a single pull-up. But weird, Ian, he's playing in the NHL. Yeah, and while we're talking about pull-ups and bench presses, Kevin Durant famously couldn't do a, a bench press. He couldn't do one lift of a bench press at the NBA Combine. It didn't end up mattering because he was really good at basketball. But again, I always find it interesting that in hockey, it's all basically core, glutes, quads. Like it's it's all like basically your your core and your lower body. I don't understand the importance of a bench press or a pull up. I'm not sure how that relates to playing hockey, really. Um, and then there's the shuttle run slash agility test, and that test actually. So the CHL, the Canadian Hockey League, does that on ice, but off ice, it's could be a good indicator um, for your strength and conditioning staff, and we'll get into that. But it essentially, you run one place, stop, and kind of, it's a shuttle run, right? And they test you going both directions, so to your left and to your right. Um, and that's something that can be transferable in terms of your agility, how off, how quickly you can switch directions, things like that. Um, then that's you have what your I was wondering, jump, like, is... Sorry, when it comes to agility, I was curious, is there like a correlation between players who have great edges and can make quick cuts versus the ability to run the agility run quickly? Because 
I don't know. I feel like Jeff Skinner's like edge work, Jake Gardner's edge work, Crosby's edge work is a separate skill from you know, quick tip twitch muscles. Um, so I know that, so Gary Roberts has like this training thing. And one of his things is agility where you've got to react and go that way. And, uh, McDavid is notoriously unbelievable at it. And we all know how good he is and how agile and quickly he can switch directions on the ice. Tyler Sagan is also ridiculously good at it. So is Mark Shifley. Um, and those players are all players that not so much on their edges, but more, if the puck switches directions or they realize they need to switch directions, they're going and they react super quickly. So I think that there's there's got to be some correlation. I just, I'm not a sports scientist yet, so I wouldn't be able to give you the full rundown. Give it time. Give it time. <laughs> exactly. Give it time. And then there's the two bike tests, which is the the ones that Ian keeps referring to. Yeah, baby. This is what I'm all about. This is my favorite part where there's just the dude who's relentlessly screaming at these teenagers. It's it's awesome. I love it. So there's the Wingate, which basically tests your power. So it tests your mean output, your peak output, and then your fatigue index. So how quickly kind of you recover. Is that the one I'm thinking of? Or is the one I'm thinking of the VO2 max? The VO2 max is absolutely what you're thinking about. That's the test where everyone pukes. Or at least they try to, because there was one dude a few years ago who puked doing the, the bike test, and then all the, the GMs were watching and going, wow, wow, this guy has so much heart, so oh my god, he put so much effort into it that he puked. So then agents were telling their clients to puke after doing the bike test, and it's just, it's amazing. I love it. Yeah, so that one kind of is more like anaerobic, I guess. Um, but Tyler Myers infamously, he was on the Wingate test, and um, he was pedaling so hard and so strongly that the bike almost became detached from the floor that it was on because he was <laughs> just being that violent with the bike. Plus he's like six foot eight, like 220 pounds, a big dude. So yeah. So those are essentially the tests, And then you get your results. And I know Sportsnet posts like the top 10 results for each test. And if a player shows up in like seven of 10 where he's in the top 10, well then like, okay, that's probably a pretty good sign that this guy's in shape. So like Joe Valeno showed up and in a bunch of them, he was in really good shape. I want to say, uh, who, who am I forgetting? Um, there were a couple kids that, that showed up kind of in a bunch of tests in the top 10 and that can kind of show you, okay, like this guy's clearly in shape. Well, I'm thinking someone like Morgan Riley is like an excellent athlete, Chris Kreider, like those kind of guys I, I gotta think would show up well in these kind of tests. For sure. So that's the physical testing part of it. And then there's the interview part of it. This is the part that actually matters, I feel like. Yeah, so you'd be surprised. Like, teams don't really do a ton of interviews during the season. Like, they will interview, but this is sort of the nitty-gritty where everyone's there. So your GM's there, your AGM, your director of scouting, assistant director of scouting, your director of player personnel, anyone else that you want to have in the room. Like, they're all in there, so they can all get a gauge, as opposed to just one scout doing a write-up, right? So, in these interviews, you can ask about injuries, because sometimes they're not really posted, or they're super vague. Um, so, you can ask, like, what injuries have you had? What was your recovery? You can ask anything you want. You can ask about their families. So, what do you do outside of hockey? What does your family do? What does your mom do? Dad? Siblings? Kind of get an idea. Um, and then there's one question that I know a lot of teams like to ask, and I'm actually a fan of this question just because of what it tells you about other players. And the question is, if you could take one teammate of yours with you, who would it be? And I know in um, previous years, so like last year, um, the New Jersey Devils 
uh, director of scouting, Paul Castron, said that when they asked a bunch of players this at the Combine, a bunch of players said Ty Smith. So they knew that when if they drafted Ty Smith, which they did end up drafting him, they knew they were getting a guy that was well-liked and well-respected by his teammates. So it, it more tells you sort of what they think of other people. And then you have your unconventional questions, which are Ian's favorite. <laughs> There is. I remember Des Bryant in this is an NFL combine going way back when they asked him if his mom was a prostitute or something like that. And he stormed out of the interview because he was like, what kind of question is that? And I'm not saying that happens in the NHL, but anytime someone tries to throw off a 17 year old with a with a question like that, it just that that bothers me. That rubs me the wrong way. Well, this year, some team asked a kid, "Okay, we're all in this room. There is a giant python outside in the hallway which one of us is going out first? Like, what? <laughs> to me, if he answers that question with, like, the perfect answer, like, you, you take that kid in the top ten. I'm just saying. That's, like, the, the go-to. But just to quickly touch on your previous question, because I found it really interesting when it came to whether or not players want uh, a certain guy on their team. Because obviously you're going to pick a good player. You're not going to pick some fourth-line grinder. But there's a really tough thing when we're, we're trying to project 17-year-olds. We can look at numbers. We can look at how will they produce in a certain league. We can watch video on them. But it's tough to know how hard is this kid going to work off the ice to improve certain flaws in his game. You know, like a John Tavares, is he going to put in the work that's necessary to improve his skating stride? Is, is Ryan Merkley going to put in the work to improve the defensive side of his game? I know there were huge question marks about that last year. So when it comes to someone like Ty Smith, if everyone's saying, yeah, this is the guy I want, this is the kind of guy I want on my team, to me, that says, wow, this guy probably has a lot of those off-ice intangibles that's going to result in him improving his game. And again, it's one of those things that's tough to quantify. It's tough to measure, but it's very important when we're projecting the future success of a 17-year-old. And I feel like that's something that, you know, quantitative hockey nerds like me tend to forget about in the draft process. That, you know, it's it's, it's more of an art than a science. We can use science to help improve kind of projecting players moving forward, but there are still some uh, qualitative elements that really matter. So, and that leads kind of into the next thing, which is once you have all this information, so the physical testing, you've done your interviews, who uses this information and what is it used for? So obviously management uses the information and like Ian was saying, they essentially, they use the interviews and they, you're making a profile on the player, right? So if you're going to draft a guy, you're probably going to want to know a little bit more than his height, weight, and the town that he was from. Like, I, I don't know about you, Ian, but... The hockey DB information, that's, that's all I need. You know what I mean? But then there's things like they'll look at red flags on answers, confidence level. So if the kid is not confident at all or if he's too cocky, both of those are, are red flags. And then to be fair, once you get into your rankings where you're kind of in 130, 140 kids deep, there's not really a discernible difference between a bunch of players. So your interview could be a separating factor between whether or not you're 144, you're 136, let's say. On a draft board, yep. Exactly. I mean, it shouldn't make a difference in the first round and a half, but it could be a separating factor later on. Out of curiosity, what would make someone drop down a list based on an interview? Just because I feel like these interviews, everyone has... Uh, like the, they're well-prepared answers. They know what's coming. They've, they've been prepping for this. I just feel like it's kind of default questions and default answers, kind of like what we see in post-game scrums. You know, oh, got to get pucks in deep. You know, got to have four lines. Got to get back on the back check. Got to get in on the four check. 
what makes someone drop down a list or move way up a list in these interview processes? I would say um, that's where the teammate questions kind of come in. So if you have, let's say you pick one guy that you would take and one guy that you wouldn't take. Well, if a guy continually comes up in the, I wouldn't take him, that's concerning. Um, and the same thing for, I would take him. And another thing that is, I know teams think is a red flag is you ask the player, okay, what did you learn from this experience? Or what are improvements in your game you believe you need to make to take your game to the next level? And as a scout, you already know what those are because you've been evaluating them for the best part of two years. If that player has no clue what he needs to improve on to make the NHL, that's a huge red flag because that tells me he's either not tapped into what he needs to do to get better or he doesn't care. And that's kind of concerning. At the same time, I've seen in the NFL sometimes, because again, I'm a huge NFL guy. I've watched a lot of combine. There are some players you ask them, like, where do you think uh, you're going to get drafted or you should get drafted? And some players like, I think I should go first overall. I think I'm the best player in this draft. Even if they're a little bit delusional, it's that self-confidence that's going to drive them to be a better player. So it's tough. I know that sometimes we want players to be super self-aware, but if you're extremely confident, extremely motivated towards becoming the best, I can understand why you wouldn't necessarily care so much if they're 100% self-aware of their flaws and their strengths. That's fair enough. But I mean, if you've got a player that comes in and it's very clear that he needs to work on his defensive game and his answer to you is, well, I think I need to uh, work on my transition to the offensive zone and, and sort of be up in the play. I'm like, uh, okay. Like, I need more power play time. I think that's what it comes down to. <laughs> that would be a giant red flag for me. Okay. Um, when it comes to the physical testing, is there anything you learn in that process that you didn't already know about the player? Or measurements can sometimes be a big deal because sometimes a guy's listed at, you know, 5'11 all year and then he comes in at the combine and he's five foot eight and a half, Or he's six foot one, and you go, oh, wow, this guy was actually a bit taller than we thought because... We don't really get a chance to see him. He was playing over in some Swedish B-League. He comes into the combine, all of a sudden, wow, he's, he's a bit taller than we thought. Not that height and weight should dictate what you think of a player, but sometimes it can actually be a definitive, objective measurement versus something we're told. And, you know, like Johnny Gaudreau being listed at 5'10", I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> Cole Caulfield is 5'11". Uh, really? Um, so here's the thing with the physical testing. Yes, you get the measurements and it does give you that barometer. So if a player at the beginning of the season was listed as 165 and all of a sudden at the combine, he's 172, you're like, well, wait a minute. Like, did he just work hard during the season to put that weight on or was he listed sort of below? That's when you kind of do your research. But in terms of your results at the combine, this can be key for strength coaches and your trainers because they'll have an idea of your previous injury history but then there's different things at the combine that can kind of flag if you are um have a potential problem area so if a guy struggles with the flexibility one that could be a red flag in terms of maybe he doesn't have good hips like maybe we have to open up his hips or maybe he's got a hip problem um if you've got weak knees that'll show up in the agility one like there's different things that people far smarter than us in terms of the sports science would be able to kind of lean in and be like, okay, his results here would indicate that maybe he doesn't have a strong ankle or um, he's likely to get hurt muscle wise. There's different things. And then the other thing that gyms love to 
look at, and we touched on this, was how far an athlete can push themselves. So their physical and muscular endurance. Um, are they willing to go that far where they puke on the bike? Or are they willing to do the bench press until their arms basically fall off? Um, so not only do you get your muscular endurance, but how far is a player willing to push himself kind of thing? Because that'll give you an indication potentially of what they're going to be like in the off season when you give them a workout program. Are they going to push to get better? So I would say like the main thing for the strength coaches is the red flags for potential injuries down the road. Anything else you wanted to touch on before we move to the next uh, kind of section here? Oh, I think uh, that sort of gives you the, um, the scope of what happens at the combine. But I think what definitely needs to be touched on is how the combine can be more effective right can i lean in a bit here because definitely go right ahead in case it wasn't clear i think that relative to say sports like the nfl or, or the nba i think the nhl combine is uh i don't want to be too rude here but it doesn't really make any sense it's it, like the sport happens on the ice and in the nfl the point of the combine is to assess like the athleticism of some of these players for um a running back we want to see how powerful you are we want to see how quick your 40 yard dash is for uh, a defensive lineman, we want to see how quick your acceleration is, how quick your your 10-yard dash is. Because we don't care as much about the 40-yard dash. You're not going to be running all the way down the field. But your 10 and your 20-yard dash, we care a lot about that. We want to do your agility testing and see how quickly you can run around these cones. If you're extremely agile, that's going to matter. We want to test your vertical because unlike in hockey, your vertical is actually going to matter. I know Morgan Riley jumping up at the blue line to keep pucks in is really cool, but... I'm not sure how much vertical jump is actually correlated with NHL success. Whereas in the NFL, if you're a wide receiver who can jump really high, that's important. And if you can't jump very high, that's that, that's that's it's really going to hurt you on the field. So I feel like the whole point of the NFL combine is to assess athletic ability that's transferable to on-field performance. Whereas all of the NHL's athletic testing, none of it's really transferable in my opinion. We're not putting these players on the ice and doing agility testing on the ice. We're not testing a player's red line to red line speed or blue line to blue line speed. Like that would be really important in my opinion, if we're trying to assess someone's athleticism, doing agility skill, um, agility tests on the ice, you know, and looking at players edge work on the ice. I feel like there's so much potential here to assess the athleticism of these prospects. And we're just, we're not doing it because I don't really understand why every other sport is putting their players on the field, on the court in situations that are very similar to the actual sport. Whereas in hockey, we're putting you in running shoes and shorts and putting you on a bike. And I'm just like, that's that's not hockey. And I don't understand it. Okay, so let's say Ian gets to make the combine. You obviously have your interview process. What testing are you doing? So I want to get players on the ice. Because, for example, someone like Mitch Marner or Johnny Gaudreau, I feel like they wouldn't do very well in an off-ice testing group because they're not very strong. They're little toothpicks. But you put them on the ice, they're excellent skaters. I mean, their core and their lower body strength and just their skating technique is what makes them so great. And that doesn't show up in a physical test off the ice. Whereas on the ice, if you do some edge work with Johnny Gaudreau and Mitch Marner and they're doing some agility drills, it's really going to show up. If you're doing uh, a blue line to blue line skating forwards, for defensemen, you could look at some backwards skating, um, backwards agility and turning, lateral movement. That could be really cool. I feel like there's a lot of interesting ways to make this work. For goaltenders, it's a bit trickier, man. Goaltenders are voodoo at the, at the best of times, so maybe someone else could come up with some great ideas there. But for forwards and defensemen, I feel like there's a lot of ways to look at someone's all-around skating ability, maybe... 
I was thinking you could look at shooting ability, but again, that's tougher to do in a in a test setting. That's more of something that you need to to see in a game situation. But I feel like athletically in the NFL, we're looking at your running ability, north south, east west. You know, changing directions. Can you maintain your speed? I'd want to see that on the ice for skaters, and I'd love to see how some of these taller players in the draft could do relative to some of the shorter players, because if the shorter players really separate themselves with their skating ability, at the end of the day, that's what's going to matter. And if the tall players can't get themselves around the ice at a high level, that's going to be a huge red flag for me. So I care about athletically measuring, or at least, you know, eye testing skills that are transferable to the NHL. And for me, pull-ups and bench press and the VO2 max puke bike, as, as fun as it is to watch, I feel like it's almost meaningless. And I care a lot more about someone's 40-yard dash time in the NFL. I care a lot more about their vertical, their agility testing. I look at the wide receivers running routes because, again, that's transferable to what they're going to be doing in the NFL. I want to see more transferable skills tested on the ice. That's what it really comes down to for me. Yeah, so essentially... You probably you're probably gonna gain more by doing testing on the ice. I know the CHL does it at the top prospects game. They do things like agility testing and uh, some skating stuff. But it would be it would be cool to see, let's say for example, defenseman, how quickly you can go back puck retrieval, make a move in transition, and get up the ice. Like that would be sort of the more interesting thing for me. That would be awesome. Yeah, and like someone like Ty Smith would be awesome at that. Yeah, and you'd have the video of it, so even then you can then take that tool, go back and analyze it. So let's say you draft this player. Well, now you give it to your player development staff. Okay, this is what he did at the combine. Go break it down, analyze it, make him better, right? Now you have the video. Whereas, too, you're not going to take video of a guy riding a bike. You just have the numbers, right? So I, I agree with you. I think there's merit to the body measurements and probably the force plate the flexibility stuff because that sort of like I said gives you the window into injuries but in terms of doing on ice stuff I would I would agree in terms of making it similar to the NFL structure the NBA structure where you're actually in the field of play or in this case on the ice doing things that are are extremely applicable if not directly a part of the game of hockey because at the end of the day if Mitch Marner or Braden Point or Nathan McKinnon can't do 10 pull-ups, but Cody McLeod and Roman Polak can, I'm still taking the first three players. Yeah, and it's because of what they can do on the ice, which is really all that matters at the end of the day. So that's why I don't really care how much someone can bench press. I want to know how quickly he can skate and get around the ice and... I know that the counter argument is going to be, well, you know, agents don't want their players on the ice for these kind of things. It increases the risk of injury. And to that, I counter with, well, the NFL combine, you risk injury by doing all these drills rather than not doing them. But it's become common practice. If you want to increase your draft stock, you need to go to this event and show teams what you can do athletically. So if it becomes common practice for all these skaters, all these draft eligible prospects to do on ice testing, then that's going to become the norm moving forward. And yeah, like an NFL player could easily pull a hamstring running a 40-yard dash, could easily tear their ACL if they turned the wrong way and awkwardly bent their knee. There's risk for really any kind of injury to happen during these kinds of tests. You could tear your pec when you're doing the bench press if you push yourself too far. But those are the risks. And if you want to increase your draft stock and you want to show teams what you can do athletically, you go to the combine. Almost every player does, except for a few quarterbacks who 
choose to do their own pro day later on. And that's another conversation for another day. The fact that there's these NFL combines and then players have their own uh, in the NFL. They have their own pro day at their university where they're doing drills again and they're doing other kind of cool things where they show the transferable skills on the field. In hockey, we don't really have that at the prospect level, and I'd love to see it. I feel like it would give us a lot more useful information heading into the draft. And for fans, hey, like you put this on NHL Network, some obsessed fans are going to want to see what their team, who's picking in the top 10, they're going to be looking at these skaters on the ice. They're going to be looking at, you know, uh, Bowen Byram's lateral mobility, his ability to pivot out of a corner, and they're going to go, ooh, wow, maybe we should take him with the fifth overall pick. So I feel like it's a chance to increase ratings for TV. That's what the NFL does. NFL puts the NFL Combine on NFL Network. People watch it. So what about, what about with all the player tracking that's coming in, do you think that there's potentially, I mean, I think there's got to be an opportunity to use some of that player tracking and apply it to things like the combine and maybe they alter the combine because they're going to have all of this information available to them. I mean, that's more numbers that teams are going to be able to see. And let's say you do stuff on the ice. Looking at players like top speed, for example, how quickly a player accelerates to top speed, that kind of thing. Exactly. How powerful was the first step? Yeah, first two steps. First three steps. Yeah, that could be really interesting. Right? So I think that with... The new age of player tracking coming, that's potentially something that you could do because, like you said, in the NFL, they're measuring a 40-yard dash. Well, in hockey, you could do the acceleration thing, and if you have your, your player tracking, now you have those numbers to lean on instead of just like a stopwatch. What would be a good test, do you think, the, like the NHL equivalent of a 40-yard dash? Maybe goal line to red line, like to center ice? See, I don't think straightaway speed is as important in hockey as it is in football. Um, I think if you do something where you've got to do your acceleration and then you've got to potentially like receive a pass or you've got to weave through different cones depending on like which one lights up, sort of like the Gary Roberts drill. That would be so cool, like quick cuts and quick decision making. Yeah, Right, so you explode through, let's say, your defensive zone and then once you get to the neutral zone, um, there's a bunch of sort of gates, let's say, and you one is going to light up and you have to react and go through that gate kind of thing. And I want to see what the reaction time is. I want to see how quickly you can do that. I want to see if you slow down. Scouts will be looking at players' quick feet, the edge work, how, how seamlessly they weave in and out of the cones. Like, it would be fun to watch and it would be useful information. Yeah, I think it would. And there Your dog is agrees, the by the way. Just third member there. of the podcast. <laughs> it's her birthday today, though, Aww. so she can do whatever she wants. She's how old puppy. is she? She is three today. Ooh, ooh, in dog years, that's 21, man. That, those, are the, those are the prime years right there. Yeah, and she's extremely sassy to the point where, like, someone came and yelled at us yesterday. And I'm like, okay, settle down, you old man. <laughs> it was literally the most old man yelling at a cloud thing I've ever live experienced. And yesterday was just not the day. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> no one in this house cares if you don't like that the dog barks. I think we'll give the uh, the birthday girl the last word there on the combine. Did you want to transition to some of the mailbag questions? Yeah, let's uh, let's hit that mailbag. And there's a couple interesting ones. Um, what attributes do you see in prospect development to determine when the player is ready to make the next step to the net, uh, to the NHL? All right, I'm curious to hear your answer first. I might have a different way of uh, looking at it. I think for me. It depends on if the player is stepping out of junior or if he's coming from the AHL or overseas, right? And it also, again, it depends. We're going to leave goalies alone. 
that's basically prospect analysis for me. I'm like ranking the forwards, the defensemen. People are like, hey, Ian, what are your thoughts on these goalies? I'm like, I think they're goalies. <laughs> like, I'm going to leave that for people who are much smarter than me. <laughs> I honestly, I leave that up to, like, I do evaluate goalies. I worked a lot with the Devils on, on their goalie development. Um, but that's just a whole other explanation. Maybe we'll do a goalie podcast. It's almost a different sport when it comes to like evaluating certain skills. It's it's very difficult to be an expert at like both forwards and defense evaluation and goalie evaluation because it's so different. Right. So I think with forwards, um, what I'd like to see is do you have the skill? Um, are you playing like if you're playing top line in the CHL or in the HL? Are you going to be playing top line in the NHL or are you going to be playing third line? And let's say you're playing third line, so you're playing a different role. Are you capable of playing that role? So if you're on the first line, you're going to be expected to score in the NHL. Whereas to on the third line in the NHL, you're more expected to be defensively responsible. We care about your ability to get in on the forecheck, your defensive responsibility, how well you retrieve pucks. Uh, can you kill penalties? That kind of thing. Right. And the perfect example is Trevor Moore. So when he is playing in the AHL, he's the top scorer. Well, when he comes up, Mike Babcock's got him on the fourth line and he's got to play a completely different role. Can he do that? So it's about being well-rounded, unless you're a William Nylander type or a Braden Point type, um, where you're playing in the AHL specifically to hone your skills so that when you come up, you can be a top-line player. For defensemen, I think it's a little different. I think I'd want to see you in all situations. So... Can you play against the top competition? Can you play against middling competition? Can you play a three and three? Can you play on the power play? Can you play on the penalty kill? Are you effective in all areas? Like, I think the defensemen need to be more well-rounded because the likelihood that they're getting called up to a team that doesn't have a power play quarterback is very slim. So if that's your only purpose... Yeah, you're going to come up and play PP1 for us. Like, yeah, that's not happening. No. It, it just... It, not gonna happen for you so like Kali Rosen in Toronto he plays on the top PP unit with the Marlies it's him or Sandine essentially he not taking Morgan Riley's spot like that's not happening so what can he do can he penalty kill can he play against the more physical types in the NHL because he's not going to be getting that top line matchup he's going to be playing against the third and fourth lines more than likely I like the approach you took. It's interesting because, like, unless you're a top five pick, you know, a superstar player who's just absolutely obliterating a league like Elias Pettersson or Mitch Marner, like, you're not going to come in and be a top six guy. You're not going to come in and be a, a power play quarterback. So do you have transferable skills? Again, this is, like, the, the, the key word of the podcast. Like, is your game well-rounded enough for you to provide value in areas other than just scoring? Because that's probably what you were providing to your lower-level team because you were probably the best scorer on that team but you're going to need to provide more than just scoring to have value at the NHL level. Right. So I saw this thing the other day, and it was essentially ranking which Marlies are ready for a step kind of with the Leafs. And Mason Marchment was on that list, and Jeremy Bracco was on that list, and Sandine and Liljegren. And to be completely honest, is Jeremy Bracco the better hockey player? Yes. Is he as ready to step in as Mason Marchment is? Not in my opinion, because Jeremy Bracco coming up is not playing on the top two lines. Those things are set in stone, basically. So now you've got to play that third line role. And again, is he capable of doing that? Whereas Mason Marchman shows he's capable of scoring, but he's also shown that he has zero fear whatsoever in 
doing anything physical and getting in on the four check. So when he comes up and he's got to play the fourth line role or the third line agitator, whatever it is in the bottom part of the lineup, he's already shown with the Marlies that he can do that part. And the scoring sort of just happens to come because he's a very good hockey player. But he doesn't need to show that he can score at the NHL level to stay here because he can do other things as well. Jeremy Brack was such an interesting one. because I feel like on another team, if he was on, like, let's say L.A., I feel like he could come up, you put him with a good shooter, he quarterbacks your power play, and he can actually provide big-time value for you. On a team like the Leafs, who's just, you know, at right wing, they have Mitch Marner, William Nylander, Kasper Kapanen. Their top power play unit is a bunch of all-stars. Like, guess what? Jeremy Bracco isn't going to get a lot of power play time here. So that's an interesting case. We're like we were talking about before. Yeah, you're an elite scorer, but on this specific team, you're probably not going to be able to provide value as a scorer. So... If, if I'm thinking about this as a nerd, like number-wise, can you drive play? Can you drive shot metrics? Can you drive expected goals? You know, your RAPM on Evolving Wild, is that going to be very positive? Are you going to be like a Nino Niederreiter play driver? And I feel like that's kind of going to be the thing that you need to do if you're not a top-line, top-six-level scorer. So, for example, we're talking about players who can come up and maybe provide value on a third or fourth line. Are you driving play really well at the AHL level? Are you getting in on the forecheck, winning puck battles? Are you defensively responsible? Do you have a bit of scoring touch? Because if you have absolutely zero scoring touch, I'm not sure how much value you can really have. This is kind of the, the Frederick Gauthier problem. But uh, like you said, with Mason Marchwood, like is that a guy who can drive play? Or a player I think of is Zach Hyman on the Marlies. You look at his point totals, they weren't very good. You know, he wasn't producing like Connor Brown was at that level. He wasn't producing like Kasperi Kapanen was or William Nylander, you know, or even someone like Nikita Sostrikov. But he was so good at driving play. I know the Kyle Dubas and uh, Sheldon Keefe talked about it at the time. Whatever line he went on started dominating like at five on five, like they lived in the offensive zone. So he became a player that you could use in that kind of role. And then he slowly moved his way up the lineup because of his ability to do things other than scoring. But I feel like that's kind of the... The thing to look at for these kind of guys. Like, are you driving play? Exactly. Are you driving the bus? Because if you're just a passenger, there's no passengers in the NHL. Very rarely are you a successful passenger. Um, and so it's more of, are you driving the bus? And what type of bus is it, right? Is it a bus that we need? Or is it sort of, you're not going to be able to play that role, so I need you to be able to be a difference maker in this aspect. So it's player by player, um, and that is key. And I feel like we're talking about the vast majority of NHLers, like let's say 90% of NHL prospects, because if you're in that elite tier, you know, if you're a, a, a Quinn Hughes, for example, on Vancouver, like this doesn't really apply to you. Like, you know, you're kind of like a superstar prospect who's going to come in and get some opportunities to succeed. We talked about how players typically don't come in and get power play one time. There's a legitimate argument that you could have given Quinn Hughes power play one time because they don't really have any other defensemen who are good at running it, so... He will QB their PP this year. That I have. I really hope so. So yeah. this is more about prospects who maybe aren't drafted in the top 10, which is the vast majority of prospects. Exactly. All right. So moving on. Um, someone asked, and this is sort of a, we're going to use a, a specific player as an example, but it kind of applies to all players who are viewed in the same manner as this player. Why does... Nikita Zaitsev have value and what teams are potential fits so what are some other okay so hockey Twitter hockey nerds on Twitter can't stand Nikita Zaitsev and I find him to be a very frustrating player to watch because I feel like 
even though he has these combine tools that we talk about, you know, these, his skating ability, his edge work, his backward skating, it's, it's all of them suggest that this should be a very talented player. And he's good defensively. He's good when he doesn't have the puck, but he cannot make a breakout pass. And that results in him getting stuck in his own end for a long period of time. And it's funny, even though he's good without the puck, he's so bad with it that he spends a huge amount of time in his defensive zone. And then if you look at any kind of measure that measures um, how many shots are you generating for your team when you're on the ice and how many are you giving up, how many scoring chances, expected goals. And when you adjust for context, when you adjust for who you play with and who you play against, Nikita Zaitsev's defensive value actually isn't very good because if you can't make a breakout pass, you're going to be playing a lot of time in your defensive zone. And that's kind of the issue with, I don't know, who are some other players who come to mind? Um, Carl Alsner, a fair one, but he doesn't have to say Carl Alsner, Roman Polak. um, Jack Johnson? Jack Johnson, Eric Goodbranson. Rasmus Ristolainen's a, a, a tricky one because much That's like Zaitsev. completely different, yeah. But he has, he has the tools, but the decision-making is what holds him back. Chris Russell's one who comes to mind for me. Yeah, so I think with a player like Nikita Zaitsev, um, it's funny because a lot of the time the issue with defensemen is they're very good with the puck and an absolute tire fire without it, which is why you see a lot of young defensemen take two to three years to come up if not longer because they're very good with the puck their offensive defensemen and junior or wherever they're playing but their defensive game in air quotes needs work that's the ryan merkley problem yes so where nikita's problem is he's very good defensively he has those tools but without like when he has the puck it's it's like a hot potato basically and i don't know if some of that's been driven into him in terms of like off the glass and out, off the glass and out. Which Make the safe play, and I'm like, ooh, I'm not a fan of that kind of coaching if that's been driven into him. Right. So I think that that potentially has something to do with it. But he has value because a lot of teams are looking for... They have the puck-moving defenseman. They don't need that. They need a defenseman that can play defense. And to be fair, Toronto needs a defenseman that can play defense. And if we can be realistic, in a shutdown pair alongside a player who can move the puck, he actually can have some value. Look at what he did with Jake Muzzin in the playoffs. Exactly. I'm going to give the bulk of the credit to Jake Muzzin, but watch tape of Brad Marchand coming down the wing and trying to create space for himself alongside Zaitsev. Zaitsev angled him off to the board, separated him from the puck, quickly reversed it to Muzzin, who then made the play out of the zone. Zaitsev doesn't have the skill to make that play out of the zone, and that's why in any kind of zone exit measure, he's going to show up very poorly. But if you can pair him alongside someone who's very good at moving the puck, I feel like he can have value. I still don't like him at that contract, obviously, but I think he could be a number four defenseman, and I think that's a lot higher than, than what a lot of people think of him. I think a lot of people see him as a replacement level player. Personally, I think because defense is so tough to evaluate, it's one of those things that I'm not sure really shows up in his numbers. The fact that he can go one-on-one with a Brad Marchand coming down the wing and take away space from him, which not a lot of players in this league can do. So I think NHL teams are going to see value in that, even though I don't think he's worth his current contract. So I guess that's my take on Nikita Zaitsev. And a lot of players like him, to be honest. There are players for who me, are much like him. For me, uh, there are a lot of, just because of the way that uh, some certain people with power in hockey think, um, they would rather have the defenseman that can play steady defense without the puck and cross-check people in front of the net and 
be hard to play against, play on the PK, then have the guy that can move the puck and make the play, but isn't as steady defensively as someone like Zaitsev. That's the Dougie Hamilton effect. That's why he's been traded so many times. I mean, that, that and is museums. why, and, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, but he definitely has value because there are teams that would rather have that safe defenseman in their own end than the defenseman who maybe is a little bit less sound, but can do so many other things well, but all the teams see is the glaring error in the defensive zone. So who's a fit for for a player like Nikita Zaitsev, let's say? A defensive defenseman who is probably making a bit too much money, but he has things, aspects in his game that some NHL GMs are really going to value. I was always thinking Edmonton if they had the cap space, but they don't They don't have the cap space. So I, I don't... I'm not even going to look at the cap space. I'm just going to go with teams that are fits. Um, I think Edmonton is a fit. I agree with you. Uh, Vancouver is a fit. My Ooh, dog your, agrees with that. dog was not that. happy with that one. That was, that was Canucks Twitter right there responding to... <laughs> yeah, I just, I just hear all of the, uh, the army coming at me. But yeah, I think Vancouver, I mean, they're pretty depleted with the exception of Quinn Hughes. Um, I even think something like like Dallas like think about if he plays with Lindell or Haskinen or whatever Haskinen Haskinen would be a great matchup because I feel like right. they complement each other in a way exactly because then you just de- you just deploy Haskinen to make the breakout pass yeah and again the goal is to have a player who can play defensively like Zaitsev and move the puck like a Jake Muzzin but that's the issue yeah and those those defensemen are 10 million dollars a year Eh, I, I think that there are some that are very underrated, like a Calvin DeHaan or a Damon Severson or, you know, the list goes on. I think there are a lot of defensemen out there who people don't realize how good they are. It's, it's two-way defensemen. Tell me how good Damon Severson is, Ian. It's pretty bad. I think the Leafs should uh, trade for him and New Jersey shouldn't give up anything. Just throwing that out there. But... Huh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Moving along. What are Ian's thoughts on the Raptors? Is that an actual question? Yes. Oh they, man. It is. Uh, I I don't think people realized how into basketball I was cuz I put out an article about the Raptors on on the Athletic and I put out a, a podcast about the Raptors on the Athletic and I think people realize like oh wow like I actually I follow basketball. I know a little bit about basketball. I I for a long time I found the Raptors frustrating because as much as I love DeMar DeRozan the person and I love what he's done to like help come out for um when it comes to being public about his struggles with depression, like that really helped me because I'm going through depression a few years ago and it really helped. So Same here. I I value his on court, uh, or sorry, I value his like off court like persona, and he seems like a great guy. But the way he played basketball just always kind of bothered me because he wasn't a good defender. He couldn't hit an open three, and in the modern day, you really need to be able to do that. The Raptors right now have a bunch of players who kind of fit the modern game and are so good defensively and are versatile defensively. Kawhi Leonard's maybe the best defensive player in the league when he's healthy and he's engaged in the playoffs. Pascal Siakam, you saw it the other night. He can play, man. That guy's really good and he's only going to get better. I love him. Uh, Danny Green is knocking down shots. And again, my article I wrote down that, guess what? Danny Green, even though he hasn't been hitting shots in the past, he's a elite three-point shooter and I don't want to judge a player for a low shooting percentage in a small sample you know we know better than that and I think he's going to show people why he's such a good three and d player and why he's such a great role player on the team 
I really like this Raptors team. Kyle Lowry, Mark Gasol, very well-rounded, all-around players, team-oriented. This is such a good team. This is probably the best defensive team in the NBA right now, and they're going up against the Warriors, who are kind of depleted without Kevin Durant. I think they have a legitimate chance to win the, the championship. If, if it gun to my head, I'd say Raptors in seven. But again, I, I think this is a legitimate opportunity for the Raptors to win a championship. And I, a Toronto team's never won a championship, at least in my, from what I can remember, because I was born in 92. I don't remember. Excuse me. Toronto FC won in 2017. Major Thank sports. You. Major sports. Toronto Dude, FC they is- get 30,000 kids a game and there's a million people who watch on TV. The NBA is the best basketball league in the world. The NFL is the best football league in the world. The, the MLS is like what? the Is it even top 10? Uh, mm, I would say outside of Europe and yeah, it's probably not. That, that's more my point, is that a major sports team in Toronto has a chance to win a championship, and I think they're very, very good. And if you want more of a detailed breakdown on that, I'd suggest checking out the article I put out at The Athletic or, or my latest Leafs Geeks podcast where I, I dove deep into the Raptors with J.D. Bunkus, but we did it in a way that was supposed to be easy to understand if you weren't familiar with basketball before, so hopefully I accomplished that. But yeah, I'm high on the Raptors. I'm so excited about this playoff run, and I don't think this is just, a, oh, they have a puncher's chance. I think this is a legitimately close series, and if Kevin Durant isn't 100% healthy, and I don't think he is, when he comes back, I think he's going to be at like 60 or 70%. And if that's the case, I think the Raptors have a very good chance of, of winning this series. I, I'd call it a coin flip at this point, since they have home court advantage in one game one of the playoffs. This isn't just some miracle run of a team who might have a chance. They have a legitimate chance, and that's crazy to say out loud. So I love it. I'm very happy right now. So if they win, does the Staff and Graph podcast make an appearance at the parade together? Yes. I, I thought you meant like, are we doing a live podcast? I'm like, I'm just going to be screaming nonsense. I don't think it's going to be very good analysis. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's going to be me, you, parade, probably with a few other people in our grouping. Count me in. Count me in. I, I plan on being at Jurassic Park for Game 6 or Game 7 if the Raptors have a chance to to clinch and, and, and win the championship. So Me too, pal. I'm hoping for another fun Toronto celebration. Alrighty. Well, that concludes this week's edition of the Staff and Graph podcast. Talking about the Combine. Talking about the Raptors. Hey, you know what? It's okay to be excited. I don't understand why some hockey fans are so dismissive of basketball. Like, it's it's almost condescending. I'm not a fan of it. It's sports, man. Can we be excited about sports? Please like my sport. Sports are fun. Let's just let's just enjoy the ride. Even if you're not a big Raptors fan, if you're from Canada, like, this is so cool. Come on. <laughs> exactly. So we'll, uh, we'll be back next weekend. Hopefully I have my voice. That's the goal. Yeah, although contingency, if either one of us loses our voice... It's going to either be a scratchy podcast or it's going to be a delayed podcast. I was gonna, did you see the tweet I put out of what my voice sounded like the day after Game 6? I was li- fully crying in tears laughing at you and your voice. Only because people make fun of me for my voice. And so the fact that you just didn't have one was of great humor to it me. sounded like I've been chain smoking for like 90 years. Someone posted like a Batman gif of like, I'm Batman. And I'm like, it's like Batman going through puberty because like I, I was talking like this, but then my voice would squeak every so often. So <laughs> I don't even know, man. It was it was weird. It's, it's fun. It was well worth it. And I hope it gets to happen again sometime soon. So let's go Raptors. Let's watch these uh, NHL Cup finals and watch Boston win the cup and Toronto 
can cry a little bit, and then they can celebrate when the Raptors win. You know, it'll be a nice kind of full circle of emotions. Sounds good. We will chat soon. Sounds great. Take care, Rachel. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. Bye.